Yeah, the kids are dismissed. Thanks, man. And I feel like, you know, I feel like a very important person with this mic in my face. Um, yeah, we need to get one of those that kind of hang around, you know, do that. I don't know how much it costs, but I'm sure we can afford it. Um, I don't often quote Mick Jagger in a sermon, although I, I'm sure some of you have heard me. How many of you have heard me quote Mick Jagger before? Okay, Eleni's heard me, Brunel's heard me, maybe Laura. Oh, Christina. Do you know what I'm going you know to say, Christina? Anyone know what I'm going to say? Um, you know, he said it perfectly. It was, it was flawless um, and um, with its penetrating brevity. And it, it, you know, and it had a beat you could dance to. So all the important stuff. And he expresses the heart of unregenerate man. Uh, the man who doesn't know Christ. And he expressed it so perfectly. First, let me give you a definition of hedonist. Who knows what a hedonist is? I'm sure most of you know what that word means. It just means a life uh, devoted to the pursuit of what? Pleasure. pleasure. It's a life wholly given over to the pursuit of temporal pleasure. And I bet if we had a class project to identify a poster boy for a perfect hedonist, Mick Jagger would probably be close to the top of the list. He, uh, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He has zero monetary restrictions, zero uh, moral restrictions. I think he would be the perfect definition of a hedonist. So here's his quote. Mick says, I can't get no satisfaction. Right? And I looked up, I looked up the, uh, the chorus today on Google. I love, don't you love Google? I love Google. And he says, But I try, and I try, and I try, and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. Some of you may know Oscar Wilde. He was a 19th century playwright and libertine. Uh, he was infamous in that regard. Um, he expressed the same thought just a little differently. You may have heard this phrase. I love this quote. There are two tragedies in life. Who knows what they are, according to Oscar Wilde. The first tragedy is not getting what you want. The second tragedy is getting what you want. That's a very insightful quote, I think. Oscar's not getting it... Uh, Oscar says, not getting what you want is tragic, but not nearly as tragic as spending your whole life chasing something and then getting it, and it provides absolutely no satisfaction, no soul satisfaction. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God and His Word, Man has had this God-shaped and God-sized hole in his heart. And man has tried everything under the sun to fill up his heart and his soul. God says through His prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, 2, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not 
satisfy. God says, why do you pursue the things that do not satisfy your deepest hunger? I'm asking you, beloved, why do you do that out in the world? Why are you giving yourselves to things that do not satisfy? God says through His prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2.13, God says, why do you forsake Me, the fountain of living waters, and drink from broken cisterns that can hold no water? God says, why are you drinking? Why do you persist in drinking from dry wells that hold no water that can satisfy you? This is the Word of God. Mick and Oscar are circling the same universal human truth. Humanity was designed to desire. I like the way Piper says it. Piper says, human beings are desire factories. God designed us and wired us to to desire something. The issue is, what did God uh, design us to desire preeminently? Himself, right? Himself. In short, God made us to lust. And I know this this word makes people in Christian circles a little uncomfortable, but my point is, lust is a perfectly good word. It's just always used in a negative context. Lust just means an overpowering desire to to, uh, yearn for and to long for, to hunger for, to thirst for. God made man to lust for Him. This is what one of the things that was lost in the fall. God made us to, to not to lust after the things of the world, but after Him. Not to lust after temporal things, but the eternal one. Not to lust after finite things, but the infinite one. This is the way God designed man. And man has this God-shaped and God-sized hole in his heart. And apart from God, he can never fill it. Oscar Wilde hasn't revealed two tragedies, but one, the ultimate tragedy of fallen man is not in not getting what he wants or in getting what he wants. The tragedy of fallen man is what he wants. Amen? Apart from the regenerate man who is pursuing Christ Jesus. The tragedy of falling man is in his wanting. Man was built for God, but man has given himself to lesser things. You, you can put a thousand names on it. Money, power, status, career, um, sex, uh, you, you can put a thousand different names on it. But God is to be preeminent in the heart and lives of His people. Mick and Oscar can't find any satisfaction because they're looking in the wrong place. So beloved, I want to say to you, if you are not satisfied in your life right now, in your heart right now, then all you simply have to do is go get with God and be still. Get in His Word. Get alone with Him. Pursue Him. Seek Him. Cry out to Him. And He will satisfy your soul. He will satisfy your soul. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has set eternity in the heart of man. We understand that. All of you who have attained a certain age, we're all adults in here now, you all know that there was one thing you just thought, man, if I could get that, 
If I could get that, if I could have that, if I could have that person, oh, if I could just have a baby, if I could have this, if I could have that, I would be satisfied. I would be happy. I know every one of you have had this thought. But what happens when you get it? Immediately, the human heart begins to set itself on something else. This is always the case. It is always the case. There's only one object that will fill up the human heart. His name is Jesus Christ. I want to share this definition with you and I'll get into the text. Piper, John Piper uh, defines sin about as well as I've ever seen it. Piper says, sin is the suicidal exchange of the glory of God for broken cisterns of created things. Amen? Isn't that what it is? You're exchanging God for some lesser thing. Not only some lesser thing, some broken thing. Something that has no hope of satisfying your soul. Your heart, your mind, your imagination. God satisfies all those things. God satisfies all those things. In other words, sin is the insanity of exchanging God for stuff. It's the insanity of changing God for relationships. It's the insanity of exchanging God for, for career, or money, or power, or status, or family, or anything else. It's insanity. It's insanity. And I want to say to you, I know you've heard me say this before, those of you who've been around, it is a great insult to God that you can find more pleasure in your sin than you find in Him. That you would run to some lesser thing, that you would give your affections to some, some temporal thing. It's a great insult to the living God. It is a great insult to Him. It's, Jesus comes and He offers Himself to mankind and it's like, you know, the living God, he, he, He's incarnate. He comes, unbelievably, He comes in the flesh. And it's like men say, nah, not interested. Not interested. I'm more interested in this pile of money. Or I'm more interested in uh, this career. Or I'm more interested in this person. It's a great insult to God. John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me shall never hunger, and he who believes in Me shall never thirst. Jesus says, if any man is thirsty, come to Me. I know you have a thirsty soul. I know you do. That's how God made you. You have a thirsty soul, beloved. I do too. And only Jesus can fill it up. Jesus says, if you're hungry, come to Me and eat. I am the true bread. I am the true bread. So, I'm going to ask you, how much time this last week did you devote to seeking God? As opposed to seeking other things, how much time did you give to pursuing the greatest treasure in the cosmos? How much time did you give in pursuing Him? God says, be still and know. I tell you, beloved, if you'll just be still, you'll know He's God. He'll fill your soul up. He'll fill your soul up. Jesus says to Mick Jagger, to you, to me, and every soul on the planet, come to me. I am your satisfaction. I am your satisfaction and I will be for a billion eternities. This is what the men of Hebrews, the men and women of Hebrews 11, this is what they know. This is why they live like they live. Because they know this about God. They've learned this. 
There's nothing on this planet that can fill up my heart. There's nothing on this planet that can satisfy me. Only He can. They've learned this. And this is why they live these extraordinary lives. These extraordinary lives here in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. They believe, Hebrews 11.6, they believe that God is and that God is good. Those of you who were with us a couple of months ago, you may remember when I preached uh, that text. The true believer understands real faith is knowing that God is and that God is good. God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And so we build our lives around that reality. The men and women of Hebrews 11, they believed it, but more importantly, they what? They lived it. So I'm asking you, Christian, if you call yourself a Christian tonight, are you living it? Is it just good doctrine for you? Have you just signed off on your doctrinal statements? Good doctrine? Good theology? It's biblical? I like it. That's important, but the most important thing is, are you living it every day when you wake up? That God is and God is good. Can people read it off your life? Can your colleagues read it off your life? Your family read it off your life? Your friends read it off your life? God is and God is good. And you live like He's a rewarder. You not only live like He is, you live like He is an infinitely good God. He rewards His people. He says it over and over and over. I reward my people. Do you believe it? Listen, if you really believe it, you'll step out in faith. If you don't believe it, you won't. I know this personally. <laughs> I learned this lesson. God taught me this lesson. I'll share it with you sometime. I don't have time tonight. If you don't believe He's rewarded, you'll never step out and take a risk for God. You'll never do it. You'll, you'll shrink back every time. You say, well, I know He is, but I'm not sure if He's good. You can't live a life of faith unless you are convinced, you are fully persuaded that He is good. God is telling us in Hebrews 11, this is how biblical faith works. It's in love with God. It believes that God is good. And then it orders its life around those realities. And like I said, everyone around you should be reading God off your life. They should be reading that God is good and God can be trusted. Verses 13 through 16. You heard the text read. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, who are all of these? All of these uh, in reference to Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob. We'd also talked about Noah and uh, Abel and Enoch earlier on. But it also applies to you and me. Every believer, every believer dies in faith in that we die not having received much of the promises that God has made to us. This is one thing we're going to see in the text tonight. As Bible believers, we understand that most of God's promises are for eternity. <laughs> this is where the prosperity guys really drop the ball. This is where they really uh, make a grave error. The bulk of God's promises are for eternity. We're not to be named and claimants. 
God blesses us in the temporal realm, but the bulk of the promises are for eternity. We get some of them now, but not most. We get some of them now, but not mainly now. That will be in eternity. The born-again Christian knows this. We know that our reward, not only are we having fellowship with the Lord now, and does He bless us now, yes, this is true, but the lion's share is there. And so we live like that's a reality. Our lives look radically different than the rest of the world. Because we believe that. Our, 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 our reward is there. God is like a, a lover that you see at a distance and you're fixed on that lover. And you pursue that lover. You're moving toward that lover. Knowing that the bulk of the blessing, the bulk of the, of the treasure is there. It's not here. It's there. This is an important thing for us to understand. They died without having received the promises. And look what else it says. It says they are strangers and exiles on the earth. Don't you love it? They're basically saying, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go. How many of you are ready? I know you have ten good reasons not to go right now. But I, I tell you, beloved, when I preached my father's sermon back at the first of July, I was proud to preach his, his, his funeral. Excuse me, his funeral. And with all confidence, be able to say to the, the congregation, there's no way he'd come back. <laughs> He's with the Lord, man. He's with the Lord. He's with the Lord. You know, his heart wasn't set on this life. It was set on the next life. And so we can die. Whether we're 19 or 29 or 39 or 59 or 89 or 99, we can die and not feel jilted. I stole that from John Piper. We can die in full happiness because our reward is there. He's there. We're going to our reward. We are aliens. We are exiles. We are pilgrims. You know, the greatest, you guys know the greatest um, uh, book ever written in Christendom apart from the Bible is a book called by John Bunyan. Who remembers? Pilgrim's Progress. Why do you think it's called Pilgrim's Progress? Because that's who you are and that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be a pilgrim and you're supposed to make progress <laughs> toward God in the way you live your life. In the way that you live your life. This is a common theme in the Bible. Abraham called himself a sojourner and a stranger. David called himself a transient. Paul says that the believer, that our citizenship is in heaven. Peter called all believers aliens and strangers upon the earth. We understand in a core, in our core, we do not belong here. We do not belong here. We belong there. This is why death. For the true believer, it'll be the best day of your life. <laughs> it'll be the best day of your life, trust me. I know it's difficult for the loved ones you leave behind, but it will be the best day of your life. Uh, um, D.L. Moody, that famous uh, preacher, he said, one day you'll pick up the paper and read that I'm dead. He said, don't you believe it? I'll be more alive than I have ever been at that moment. So we understand this. God we are God's expats on this planet. Most of you know what it means to live like an expat. Some of you don't. 
But we are expats on this planet. And we are going home. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.12, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but we have glimpsed Christ. And I love how Charles Spurgeon says it. We have glimpsed God. We've seen the living God. And we are spoiled for this world. This world holds no true allure for us anymore. Yes, we enjoy our lives. We enjoy our families. We enjoy our careers. We enjoy the blessings of God. But preeminently, our heart is set on Him and on the promises of heaven. This is how we live. We don't live focused preeminently on this life, but on the next. This is what is being said here in the text. They were strangers and exiles upon the earth, and it affects the way we see, the way we feel, the way we think, the way we live, the way we hope, the way we dream. It affects everything. It doesn't affect, there's nothing in your life that it doesn't affect if you belong to Christ, if you've met Him, if you've been born again, if you're in a relationship with God. Verse 14, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. We're not citizens of the earth. We're citizens of heaven. Jesus told us in the Gospel, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Beloved, I'll just ask you, are you? Is that the first thing you seek? If there's a disinterested third party looking at your life, taking notes, running the video, running it back, do they see... Are they, would they be able to see by looking at your life that you're seeking first the kingdom of God? Beloved, this is what the Son of God says. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. This is what the Lord Jesus says. And this is what these men and women, albeit imperfectly, I'm not calling you to a, a perfection. None of us can be perfect. We understand that we're all sinners and we fall daily. We get that. But the thrust and momentum of our life is to seek first the kingdom of God. To seek first the kingdom of God. Remember what it said back there. Look back there in verses 9 and 10. It said that Abraham was an alien. He dwelled in tents. He was looking for the city which is the, whose architect and builder is God. That's what he was looking for. That was the, that's what he pointed at. That's what his life was about. I've told you this a million times. We, Christians need to be pointing at the Bema seat. The day that you'll stand in front of Jesus and you'll look Him eye to eye. That's what Christians should be pointing at. The day we give an account to the Lord. One old Puritan said it well. He says, No man may go to heaven who has not set his heart on it before. I love that. I think that's perfect. And that's what we're seeing in Hebrews 11. These men and women had their hearts set on God and on God's city, which, of course, the new heaven and the new earth. Look at verse 15. These men and women of faith could have turned back. Indeed, if they had been thinking of, of, of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. They could have returned. And some do return, don't they? Some who call themselves Christians. We've seen this many times. If you've been a Christian very long, you see this. People seem to come to Christ. They seem to be excited about Jesus. You, you run into them ten years later and they're nowhere with Jesus. We talked about it last week. 
They've returned. They tasted, they tasted, got a little taste of God and they didn't care for it. And they went back to the world. They went back to their lusts. They went back to their hoarding money. They went back to whatever it was. You know, they, they went back. Real faith never goes back. That's what the point is. Hebrews 11. Real faith, biblical faith, God-given faith, it never goes back. I'm not saying it lives perfectly. I'm not saying we don't fall. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying we never set our affections back on the world. You and I sin, and we can sin grievously. I personally know this. Most of you who have attained a certain age, you would understand that you could sin grievously more than you could ever think that you might be able to. But our affections are on God. Our affections are on God. And we confess our sin and we repent and we continue to pursue the Lord. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. It was the deepest desire of their heart, the better country. The heavenly country. And this is an awesome thing in verse 16. There's nothing like this anywhere else in Scripture. God says, I'm not ashamed to be called their God. I am not ashamed to be called their God. Look at verse 14. God says, the believers are what? They are seeking this. Verse 16. Look at verse 16. The believer is desiring this. Beloved, there it is right there. This biblical faith. Are you seeking Him? And are you desiring Him? This is biblical faith. You know, I think I may have touched on it last week. It's not just church attendance. It's not signing a card. It's not doing a sacrament or an ordinance. That is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is not a noun. It is a verb. You look it up in the dictionary, I know it says it's a noun. Biblically speaking, faith is always a verb. It's always a verb. It's always a verb. God says... People who have real faith, that's what Hebrews 11 is about. He says, my people, they desire me and they seek me. It's really simple. You know, is that what you find in the core of your heart, beloved? A desire and a hunger for God. And are you seeking Him? Hebrew, the men and women of Hebrews 11, they understand Psalm 16:11. I read it at my dad's funeral service. In God's presence is fullness of joy. In God's right hand there are pleasures forever. The believer gets that. And the believer sets his heart on that. <laughs> and we build our life around that reality. Not around earthly treasure. Not around earthly pleasure. But around God. We build our life around that. Did you notice the endorsement of God here? This is an amazing thing. I am not ashamed to be their God, He says. This is an awesome comment. God says men and women who really have faith, who really desire Me, who really seek Me, who really come after Me, who really obey Me, I am not ashamed to be their God. I am not ashamed to be their God. Those who believe that I am almighty, those who believe that I am sovereign, those who believe that I am faithful, those who believe that I am good, oh, and they live like it, I am not ashamed 
to be their God. Those who hunger and thirst after Me, those who seek Me and My Word, those who uh, give themselves to the church and use their gifts in the church, those who desire Me above everything else, I am not ashamed to be their God. Men and women who confess that they are indeed strangers and pilgrims and exiles upon the earth, I am not ashamed to be their God. The Lord says, I love this. Don't you love this endorsement? Don't you love this endorsement from God? If you have biblical faith and you live it out in your life, God says, I'm not ashamed to call you mine. I'm not ashamed to call you my own. I think it's an awesome, awesome thing. So what, what must we do to earn that comment from God? Ultimately, desire Him above all things. Ultimately, seek Him above all things. This honors God. He is seen to be worthy. He is seen to be valuable. He is seen to be the preeminent treasure in the cosmos when His people live like this. This is why it pleases the Lord for His people to live by faith. Hebrews 11, 6. They desire God above all else. And if you, know, if you just study the, the, the characters of Hebrews 11, you, you readily understand they are not perfect men and women. They are not just like you and me. I'm not talking about perfection. But I am, talking about, I am talking about confessing your sin and repenting of your sin and receiving the grace and mercy that comes from Jesus. And bam! After Jesus, man, I'm hot on His heels. Today. Monday morning. Tomorrow. Hot on His heels. What does that look like? I don't know what it looks like in your life. I don't know what it looks like in your job or in your family. I don't know what it looks like, but that's your job description. Hot on the heels of Jesus Christ. goes back to the Mick Jagger thing. It's the men and women who have their deepest satisfaction in God. Their lives shouted. And I love this. And I'm asking you, does your life shout this? I love God. He is my satisfaction. This is biblical faith. It's not... It's not always what we do, which is an outward manifestation of the inward truth. The inward truth is, I love this God. I love Him. He fills up my soul. He's my satisfaction. This is biblical faith. And of course, out of that inward reality flows the outward reality of men building arcs and 90-year-old women getting pregnant and men leaving their homes not knowing where they're going and boys standing in front of giants and Gideon doing what he did. I could go on and on and on. We'll be talking more about these people um, as we go through the chapter. I love how the American songwriter Sarah Groves sings it. She says, Something changed inside me. It broke wide open and all spilled out. This is biblical Christianity. Something changed. I've been born again. I've met Christ. Something's changed. And it breaks wide open and it all spills out. You know, if you're a real Christian, you can't, <laughs> you know, you can't keep it pent up. You know, you can't be a secret agent Christian. There's no such thing as a secret agent Christian, right? We all understand that, right? If we're real, everybody in our life is going to know it. 
Everybody in our orbit's going to know it. Our children are going to know it. Our spouse is going to know it. Our colleagues are going to know it. David said, I seek thee earnestly. So I want to ask you, beloved, are you seeking and desiring God like that? Verses 17 and 19, quickly. God says, I'll just give you another example. I'll use Abraham again. Here's another example. You know the, you know the, the great text, Genesis 22. Abraham was tested by, by God and God called him to offer up Isaac, his only son, through whom the, the promises were going to, to be realized. Verse 19. Now, when, when Abraham got this call from God, the question is, will Abraham reason his way out of obedience? How many of you reason your way out of obedience and into disobedience. You can do it real easy. It's real easy to reason your way out of obedience and into disobedience. Oh, there's, a, there's usually 10,000 reasons not to obey God. All you got to do is, yeah, the world will tell you. There's at least 10,000 reasons not to obey God in your circumstance. So, will, will Abraham reason his way out of obedience or will he trust God? This is an impossible thing. God says, kill the boy that I gave to you. Kill him. Abraham all the while knowing that the promises must come through Isaac. What does Abraham do? What does the text say? Genesis 22. Don't you love it? I love Genesis 22. Abraham got up early the next morning and he set off for Moriah. He took his boy with him. And Isaac said, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Abraham said, the Lord will provide. Amen? And Abraham was ready to do it. How could a man do this? What does the verse say? Someone tell me. What does verse 19 say? He considered that God was able to raise men from the dead. Do you get it? This is faith. <laughs> Abraham doesn't understand what God is doing. He doesn't understand why God is asking him to do this. And beloved, many times in your life, especially when it's hard, you're not going to understand. But God doesn't call us to understand. God calls us to believe. And God calls us to act. And God calls us to obey. And that's what Abraham does. Abraham goes, well, where's my knife? I'll take the boy up there right now. And he has his arm raised. And the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham, I have provided. I have provided another sacrifice. And there was a ram in the bush. There's always a ram. If you're a believer and you get out there and it's risky and it's hard and God's called you to do a hard thing, beloved, there'll always be a ram in the bush. This is just a reality. There'll always be a ram in the bush. Let me tell you how it works. You know how it works if you're a Christian tonight. The believer glimpses God. And then we desire Him. And in desiring Him, we seek Him. And in seeking Him, we come to know Him more and more. And in knowing Him more and more, we come to love and trust Him more and more. And in loving and trusting Him more, we, we desire to obey Him more and more. It's this huge love affair that goes on between God and His people. It's way past, I ought to do that and I should do that. It's about desire. It's about desire. Verse 19, Abraham trusted the character and heart of God. I mean, let me just give you, let me give you the nine verb translations I saw in, in several English translations of the Bible. 
course, the NAS says, God said he considered that God was able. Listen to these other, these other verbs in other translations. God reckoned, oh, pardon me, Abraham reckoned, Abraham believed, Abraham reasoned, he concluded, he assumed, he figured, he was certain, he counted on the fact that God could raise a man from the dead. He believed what God had told him. And he acted upon it. Beloved, it's really simple. Christianity. It's really simple. It's always that simple. Mick Jagger says he can't get any satisfaction. All he need do is turn and look at Jesus Christ. All he need do is set his heart upon the living God. That's all he need do. Jesus Christ is the satisfaction of man's soul. I am the true bread, he says. I am the true drink. So God is saying to Mick Jagger, to you, to me, and every soul on this planet, come to me. Come to me. Not in some religious way. Not in some doctrinally orthodox way. Come to me with your heart wide open. And I'll fill it up. I will fill it up. The men and women of Hebrews 11, they had fallen in love with God and this is why they lived like they lived. They were strangers and exiles. They were spoiled for this world. They were passing through. Do you desire Christ like that, friend? I'm, just asking, I'm asking you to do a, a spiritual inventory tonight. Do you desire Him like that? Or is He boxed off in some little religious corner of your life? This is biblical faith. Hebrews 11 is biblical faith. That's what we see in the lives of these men and women. They desired God and they went after God. They believed God and they obeyed God. God says... These men and women, they desired Me above all else. Therefore, I am not ashamed to be called their God. What an awesome, awesome thing. Let's pray together. Lord, forgive us if, if we turn faith into church attendance or church membership or just checking our to-do list during the week. Forgive us, Father, if we've turned worship into something like that, if we've turned our faith into something like that. Lord, we thank You for this text, how we are all challenged by it. Lord, we understand what You're saying. The core of biblical faith, it's desire. It's seeking. It's loving. It's knowing. And out of all that flows the doing, the acting and obeying. So Lord, I pray You would help us to, to find our deepest satisfaction in You. I pray... Lord, that we would not be deceived into thinking that we can find it anywhere else. 
For we will come to the end of our days and it will all turn to dust and ashes in our hands. Thank You, Father, that You call us to a high place. Thank You that You meet us there. Thank You that You fill us up there. We give all praise and glory and honor to the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to celebrate the table tonight. Um, as most of you know, we have open communion. If you have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and have followed Him in believer's baptism, you are welcome to partake with us. Paul warned the Corinthians not to come to the table in an unworthy manner. If you have sin in your life and you're not going, you have no intention of repenting, I encourage you not to come to the table tonight. Do not come to the table in an unworthy manner. But if you love Him preeminently, repent of your sin. Come and celebrate this awesome salvation that He has purchased for each one of us. Come and remember. Come and worship. Come and love Him. Come and adore Him. Kelvin will play a song. Prepare your hearts. During the song, come up, take the cup, take the bread, go back to your seat, don't partake. After the song, I'll stand and read a text, and then we will partake of the elements. <laughs>